After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 106, to stanzas 1 and 23. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we have now come to the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, and with that to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism. Have you ever wondered why that last part was even there? For the last words of the Lord's Prayer, which is known as the doxology, are not in the passage which we read from in Matthew, where the Lord Jesus taught his disciples the perfect prayer. The words for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, which you will find in the King James Version, are missing in the ESV and in the NIV and in all other modern translations. You won't find it in the parallel passage in Luke 11 either. Why is that, you may wonder? Why are these words no longer included in the modern versions of the Bible? If this doxology does not belong to the Bible, why do we include it in our version of the Lord's Prayer? And should we not then also rewrite the Heidelberg Catechism? Well, brothers and sisters, as we will see, this is a fitting conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. That's also our theme. This afternoon's sermon is about a fitting conclusion to the perfect prayer. And then we will see that our prayers must, think, must conclude with, in the first place, praise, in the second place, certainty. Our prayers must conclude with praise. The Greek word for praise is doxa. That is where we get our word doxology from. Every prayer should have a doxology, words of praise. And so these last words of the Lord's Prayer are an appropriate ending, not only just to this prayer, but to every prayer. And that is why, as we will see, some scribes also included it with the Lord's Prayer and made it part of some of the later manuscripts, not the earlier ones. Although the Lord's Prayer, as we will see, it is complete without them. Yet it's understandable that those scribes wanted to include these words. They wanted to make sure that all the glory goes to God and not to man and what he needs. For isn't it true that we usually first pray about what we need and what concerns us in our lives before we think about praising God. That is because in our personal lives, we are constantly concerned about whether or not we get what we need and whether or not we ourselves receive some of the glory and the praise. That's the kind of people we are. We want others to recognize our contributions. We want people to know about our needs and about our interests. And that attitude we bring with us in our prayers. But God wants us to praise him with every breath and with every word. That is always what has to come first. And that's what you also find in the Psalms. Psalmists give some very good examples of how to praise our Heavenly Father. 
We sang, for example, a moment ago from Psalm 47, clap your hands and shout, let your praise ring out. And later on, we will sing from Psalm 106, oh, thank the Lord, bring him your praise, extol his goodness all your days. When we think of psalms, we think of them as songs. And indeed, that's what they are. They're songs of praise. All of them are meant to be sung. That's why we also put them to music. But they are not just songs of praise. They are also prayers. And many of the psalms, especially the Psalms 145 through 50, end in similar ways as you'll find in the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Throughout all of the scriptures, you will find words similar to the doxology. For example, in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, we read the words, Yours, O Lord, is the greatest, is yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And in the New Testament, Paul offers up the following prayer in 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And the Apostle John uses similar words in Revelation 1, verse 6, where he says, To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Also, the Lord Jesus Christ used the same expression when he prayed to his heavenly Father. For in his high priestly prayer found in John 17, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. It is how every creature in heaven and on earth will praise God at the end of the age. In the words of Revelation 5 verse 13, they will sing, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And so the doxology of the Lord's Prayer is very old and extensively used throughout the Scriptures, and also by Christians in the first century and beyond. Indeed, in the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, a document written only some 50 or 60 years since the last Bible book was written, There the doxology, as the King James Version has it, was also included. But it appears that in practice, in the early church, the doxology was kept separate in the way that it was recited. For when the Lord's Prayer was recited by the early church, the people would recite all the petitions of the prayer in unison. That is to say, they would say the words out loud together with the minister, but that's not what they did with the doxology. Those last words would be recited by the minister alone, except for the very last word, Amen, which the whole congregation would also repeat. But that still leaves us with the question why it is left out in our translations. Well, as I said, it is left out because some of the old manuscripts do not use it. The translators of the modern Bible versions concluded that since the most important manuscripts do not include the doxology, that we should not either. It is really somewhat of a repetition of the first part of the prayer and doesn't belong. But in the final analysis, it doesn't matter all that much. 
as we saw, the doxology is found throughout Scripture and is a very fitting end to the Lord's Prayer. For praise belongs to every prayer. God commands us to praise him. It is through praise that we express our love for God. Isn't that what we do in our human relationships as well? When you love your wife, then you praise her. At least you should. Same thing with your children. How much more with God? For he is the wonderful creator and he is the one who gives us everything that we need for body and soul. And so we praise him for what he is and for what he does. Those who do not know what it is to love the Lord can understand that we go to him in prayer when we need something. Indeed, in times of need or of great difficulty, even unbelievers will try prayer. But they do not know what it is to pray to God in order to praise him. They do not know to praise him, especially in times when things are not going well. Only true believers, those who love the Lord, who know who he is and what he does, will praise God with their lips and in their hearts, even when times are tough. Especially then. For they know they have a Father in heaven who deeply cares for them in all their circumstances. They know that they have have a God who rules over all things. All things are in his hands. He is the king of creation. That's why we also have to praise him. And that's why in our prayer, we must also acknowledge that he rules. That's what the beginning of the Lord's Prayer was all about, but also the end. We pray for the coming of the kingdom and then for the establishing of God's kingdom. And so we pray, for yours is the kingdom. And added to that, we also pray that all power belongs to him. Those two go together. God is the kingdom and he rules his kingdom with his powerful, with his mighty arms. There is nothing that he cannot do. Think about what that means. All power belongs to God. All power. To none other. Does that mean that there are no powers beside God? Well, yes, there are. How often does it not happen that we fall into sin because of the power of our sinful desires? We confess that to God alone belongs the power, yet at times we seem powerless not to sin. We resolve not to do the same sin again. But time and again we do it. It is as if we cannot help ourselves. We feel impotent at the force of evil in our everyday lives, in our very selves. I know I feel that sometimes. Why do you think that is? Is it because of our weakness, the weakness of our flesh? Yes. But what is that weakness of the flesh? It is the devil himself. And that is why Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Those are the powers that we are contending against. We are contending, in other words, against a whole powerful army of Satan. Indeed, Satan is a formidable foe. It's no wonder that we have such a hard time eradicating sin in our lives. Satan is just too powerful. Or is he? Can we not overcome evil in our lives? Yes, we can. But only through God. And that is why Christ teaches us to pray, Yours is the power. God's name can even be substituted in that way. That is what Christ himself did. In Matthew 26, verse 64, Christ said to Caiaphas, as he was about to be crucified, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The word power is capitalized in your Bible. Power is his personal name. He is called that because he's the Almighty One who created the heavens and the earth. And by his power, he upholds all that he has created. God shows his power in so many ways. He shows it in the way that he fights for his people, for his anointed. He goes before them in battle, causing the believer to pray as did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, in 2 Chronicles 24, 6. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you. And that is also our prayer, congregation. It's my prayer. God is more powerful than anything. He is more powerful than Satan. Don't ever, ever doubt that. For do you know how God especially shows his power? He shows it especially in his work of redemption, in his work of salvation. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says in chapter 1, verse 19 and following, that God wants you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What a beautiful, what a powerful, what a comforting statement. How does God's great power manifest itself? The great power of God is shown in the resurrection of his son from the dead. Because of the resurrection, you and I, we may have life. We may have power over Satan. Through faith, God uses his might and power in order to save us from sin and from the power of sin. And in this way, God breaks the power of Satan also in your life, in my life. Let me ask you, do you sometimes despair because of the hold that Satan has on you? Do you want to give up sometime? Well, remember, God is the power in your life. 
And so when temptation comes, pray to him. Ask for his strength. For how does he show his power and how does he share it? He shows his power through his word. You know God's word. And so, brothers and sisters, listen to his word. Apply it. Be instructed by it. Read it. Meditate on it. Listen to it. Obey God's word. God's word is administered not just from this pulpit, but also to you personally, through your friends, through your parents, through your wife, through your husband, through the office bearers in the church. How wonderful it is that we may be a church together. Time and again, we have to remember that our Lord God is the Almighty One. Through His Son, He has overcome Satan. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan no longer has any hold on you. For even when you do fall into sin, as we do time and again, we may remember that God forgives us our sins as long as we are truly repentant. He is able to do so because He alone has all the power. But He is also willing to do so, more than willing. And we also pray that to God belongs the glory. When we speak about the glory of God, we speak especially about his reputation, about his honor. In the Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament, the word for glory, originally meant weightiness. God's name carries weight. In other words, it is a name to be reckoned with. To him belongs the glory, the weight. Here we find the most compelling reason to praise our Father in heaven. The name of God should receive all glory forever. His reputation is at stake. Do you know what else that means? Do you know what you are praying when you say that the glory belongs to God alone? It means that you are willing to be denied those things in our prayer which do not honor his name. In other words, it means that you ask, Father in heaven, do not give me what I so earnestly desire, but only that which enhances your reputation. It means to pray, leave me in my sorrow and in my apparent need, rather than that your name be dishonored in any way. For you see, brothers and sisters, even... Times of distress are to the glory of God. It's not necessarily in our best interest that we find immediate relief from our grief and agony. For in our pain and sorrow, we're drawn closer to God. What does a child do when it gets hurt? He knows where to go for comfort. A child goes to his mother. A child of God who is in pain also knows where to go. He goes to his Father in heaven who is all-powerful. And he is the perfect hearer of prayers. For God knows what we need better than we do ourselves. And that is why we also depend on his sure promises. God fulfills his promises into eternity. Together we are waiting the return of the Son of God on the day of judgment. And then we will see, as it says in Matthew 24, verse 30, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven 
with power and great glory. All that time, at that time, we will see God's promises being fulfilled. At that time, we will see his great power and stand in awe. At that time, we will see all the answers to our prayers fulfilled. We can be sure of that. For God will surely hear our prayer. That is what the last word in the Lord's Prayer means. There's probably no other word as universally used as that little word, Amen. For it has been taken over in all modern languages. It is a Hebrew word used to close off a prayer or a sermon. The word Amen indicates something which is reliable, firm, and sure. And yet often we treat that little word as if it had a different meaning. For some, the word Amen is an indication to wake up from our sleep or our daydreaming. We can soon go home and have a cup of coffee. The word spells relief. The Catechism, however, teaches us that this word is not used to signal the end of a sermon or a prayer. No, it is a confession. It is a confession of faith. The Bible uses the word Amen in three different ways. In the first place, it is an expression of affirmation. In other words, when you say the word Amen, or when it is said in your behalf within the covenant community, then you are stating that you truly believe the promises and the demands of the covenant. So we see, for example, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 16 and following, there Moses describes how the Levites should read the law and how the people should respond. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. And so on, and so on in that passage. God has spoken, and the people affirm their assent and obedience by their Amen. And so it's wonderful that it is the custom here in St. Albert that the people also say Amen after God's greeting and after the benediction. Amen is also used in order to introduce a solemn statement. Christ used the word in that way in many occasions. When the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 5, Truly I say to you, then in actual fact he says, I say to you, Amen, Amen. Christ speaks. We may be sure that his word is sure and utterly reliable. It's also what Paul affirms in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, when he writes, For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our Amen to God, for his glory. Jesus himself is called the Amen in Revelation 3 verse 14, where it says that these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In the third place, Amen is used as the closing statement of praise, as is the case with the Lord's Prayer. When we close our prayer in this way, we confess that God alone is reliable. We believe all the words that he has spoken and as we find them in his word in the Bible.
Is that also what that word amen means to you, brothers and sisters? Do you believe all that God has told you in his word? When you pray, do you, when you pray, do you truly believe that God hears you and that he will do everything for your benefit? Or do you send off your prayer with a maybe? Or let's hope so. Remember, God's words are reliable. They are reliable whether you say so or not. But God wants you to confess that they are at all times. For God fulfills his promises of the covenant only for those who truly believe. And therefore say amen to, God's all, to all of God's promises. He will never disappoint you. Amen.